Well, good morning. Welcome to Refuge Online. Um, I know that each and every one of you are watching this from the comfort of your own home. Uh, and uh, and I, I just want to give you a word of encouragement as we begin. <clears throat> uh, in Joshua chapter 1, you know, as uh, the torch was passed along, it was uh, given to Joshua uh, by the Lord. Um, Moses had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And, and yet, uh, at this point, uh, Joshua was the one who was responsible and ordained to bring them across and into the promised land. And, um, and so this is what the Lord had spoken to Joshua he said, beginning in, in verse uh, 6, he said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not, not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a wonderful word of encouragement that the Lord can give us. For no matter where we go, he says that he will be with us. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. In other words, he doesn't turn his back on us. Uh, you know, given the circumstances, he is with us even more so, and we ought to recognize his presence in our lives. So be encouraged, be filled with hope, know that God is still on the throne, and, um, and so this, uh, these sacrifices that we're making right now of staying home, um, <clears throat> you know, that's, um, that's small, of course, in comparison to the sacrifice of the Father as he sent his Son to die on the cross for you and I. Uh, but with that, uh, we know that even when we're faced with the difficulties that we're faced with right now, that, that God is with us and he is faithful. As we'll learn this morning um, through Stephen's um, preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is faithful. He's been faithful. He always has been faithful, is faithful today, and always will be faithful. And so he's with us today. Now, we are in Acts chapter 7 this morning, so please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. The title of this morning's message is Stephen's Last Stand. And uh, even as I uh, was thinking about um, this chapter and, uh, and what it was that Stephen was facing, I was thinking, um, what would we do? What would we say? How would we behave if we knew that these were the last moments that we were going to live. And so Stephen, I believe, is, is a great encouragement to all of us uh, as Christians, knowing that his hope was squarely uh, fixed on Jesus Christ. You know, Stephen's last stand was the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you will be encouraged this morning. Uh, now, let's begin with a word of prayer. And, uh, and we'll get into our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given to us. And I pray that you would give us understanding by your spirit. Teach us uh, and lead us into all truth. And uh, so, Lord, I, I pray also that you would, Lord, uh, strengthen us. Help us to be steadfast in the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
may we be strengthened and may we know that you are our refuge, our very present help in time of trouble and that we know, uh, we would come to know uh, and rest in the fact that, uh, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so, Father, we commit this time into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Stephen's last stand. You know, last week we learned how Stephen's countenance of perfect peace was an outward expression of an inward reality because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Because Stephen was full of grace and power when he was faced with imminent danger, he was able to express that perfect peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the very thing that was happening with Stephen in this moment. It was that trust in the Lord that was guarding his heart. Uh, The Bible says our heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? And so our hearts really can turn us in the wrong direction, away from the will of the Lord. And and we're filled with fear. Whereas also, he knew that peace uh, which guarded the mind of Stephen. You know, our thoughts can run away from us and go in all kinds of different directions. And so for Stephen, regardless of the circumstances that he was faced with, he was clear-minded. He was sober-minded. And he held his ground. And he explained how God has been faithful through the ages. And so he is today. You know, Stephen was one to know and believe God's eternal promise that he was forgiven of all of his sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, Stephen, like Paul, could say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, it says, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and how ironic that it was the Apostle Paul that was used to pen those words. And yet it was the same person who some time before that, in this very moment with Stephen, was Saul of Tarsus, who approved of the things that the religious leaders were about to do to Stephen. And the accusations that were hurled at Stephen. Now, knowing this, Stephen faced death with dignity and and he faced it with an unwavering faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, we'll see how Stephen faced his accusers and explained how they, having received the law as delivered by angels, did not keep it themselves, acting proud and unwilling to fully submit to the Lord acted in the flesh and not in the Spirit. Therefore, he was telling them that they resisted the Holy Spirit, killing the righteous one who had been announced by the prophets. They were the ones who were guilty of betraying God and murdering the Son of God. And this was Stephen's last stand. And as we see here, he made it a good one. He remained at peace 
and was very courageous as he faced his accusers. Never backing down, but standing up one last time to explain the gospel to a pride-filled and stubborn people who were missing the grace of God altogether. And I pray perhaps there's someone out there who is, who is listening and, or watching this message and you too have perhaps rejected the Lord in that way, remained in, with, uh, you know, in yourself and with a, a stubborn heart, being filled with pride and rejecting the offer of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So how about you? Because it is possible to hear and know the word of God and not understand the love of God personally. Because of pride and an unwillingness to surrender your life fully to Jesus Christ. Perhaps partly, but not completely. You can hear the word of God and not be willing to keep it obediently. Why? Because I believe that you don't understand how it was that God demonstrated his love toward you before you ever loved him by sending his son to die on the cross for you. You can remain proud and unwilling to fully submit to the Lord, acting and reacting in the flesh and resisting the Holy Spirit altogether. So how do we do that? How, how, do, how is it that we reject salvation? Well, we hear and know the truth of salvation through Jesus and refuse to act in accordance with it. We can insist on doing things in the flesh according to emotions, reacting to external circumstances in ways that demonstrate a lack of faith. Now, even here, Stephen's desire was that the gospel would be declared and understood. Well, we know that he was faithful. He was faithful to do his part. The, the gospel was declared. For us, may we be found faithful to also declare the gospel and be willing to keep God's word, demonstrating our trust in and demonstrating our love for God. Now, three things that, uh, three ways in which we're going to break down this chapter. Uh, first of all, in, the, in the, the largest portion of it will be the first part, which is God's faithfulness from Abraham to Solomon. Secondly, we'll see the gospel. It was received and yet it was rejected. And so Stephen's going to explain that. And thirdly, we'll see a compassion that, it, that was beyond their comprehension. So three things here. Let's start out with the first part, God's faithfulness from Abraham to Solomon. Now, uh, it's believed that uh, the high priest that we're going to refer to here was Caiaphas, the same one that was officiating over the trial of Jesus Christ. He was the same one that was, that was officiating over the trial of Stephen. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. 
But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now, Stephen was given the opportunity to defend himself, and yet he didn't. He seized the moment and explained with such great precision the history of God's faithfulness to a people who were chosen by him and through whom he presented the righteous one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as he continued on, as he explained this to them, how God has been faithful, faithful to them through the ages, how it was that they rejected him. Stephen was not striving to defend himself. He took the time to testify of Jesus Christ. He proclaimed the truth about Jesus Christ in such a way that it was clear and understandable, something that we should always pray for ourselves to be able to declare to others the gospel of Jesus Christ in an understandable, in a clear way, precise, and yet fully understood and fully understood by our hearers. Through this, though, what we'll learn is that Stephen was also, at the same time, he was disproving their false claims and their false accusations, which, of course, in the end, we'll see they will reject. First of all, we see God's faithfulness through these verses that we just read. So verses 2 through 8 is is Stephen um, declaring and, and proving to his hearers, Caiaphas and Saul of Tarsus and, and others who were there, the religious leaders of the time that, that were there, God's faithfulness through Abraham. Stephen went back to Abraham to the time when he was living in Mesopotamia, uh, when God called him out from his people to make him a, chosen, a people chosen by God, uh, promising a land for his people to dwell in, that his offspring would be as numerous as the grains of, of sand, the sand of the sea, And of the stars in the heavens. He said that the Lord would be their God. And that they they would worship him in this place. And God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. He gave a lot of details there. All of which, by by the way, these religious leaders already knew. But he was pointing out God's faithfulness. And the fact that God was with Abraham, even in Mesopotamia. What Stephen was pointing out with all of this is that God did not dwell in in a temple. God's home, you see, was with his people, always has been. God was just as much in Mesopotamia as he was in Haran or Canaan or even in Egypt. For Abraham, well, Abraham exercised his faith in God. He believed him. He believed him, and he demonstrated it by his actions. He left his kindred. He left his people. He believed God. Even when he didn't have not one child at a very old age, he believed God that his offspring would be so many that they couldn't be counted. As later, God demonstrated his faithfulness and brought forth Isaac, and from him Jacob, and then the twelve patriarchs. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, which Israel passed down through the descendants of Abraham to the day in which they were at, at the very present moment that Stephen was preaching, was 
giving and declaring the gospel. Even though he had given them the covenant of circumcision, we know that God is not interested solely in something that is outward. The physical circumcision, if it does not represent a spiritual circumcision of the flesh, is not worth anything. You know, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so Stephen was demonstrating that God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia and throughout his whole life. God was with him. And he was faithful. In verses 9 through 16, Stephen continues to explain God's faithfulness through Joseph. In verse 9, it says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, a king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan. And great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers." And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. You see, through this, God had provided a savior for himself, for his people, through a rejected and despised son of Israel, who was sold into slavery by his brothers and yet became the one that they bowed down to, just as Joseph had given the vision by God that would happen. And it came about. He was one that they submitted themselves to and received mercy from and delivered them from certain death. We know that God was with Joseph, as it says here in verse 9, And the patriarchs jealous of God sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. God was with him there. He never left him. He never forsook him. God was with Joseph, and there was no temple. And yet, through Joseph, God was faithful to his people. And 75 persons who were God's chosen people survived and even thrived, just like God had promised Abraham. But Stephen continues, not just with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just with Joseph does God demonstrate his faithfulness and his presence in their lives, but also with Moses, And so Stephen continued to explain God's faithfulness through the life of Moses. Verse 17 says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. 
Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. In a flame of fire in a bush, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, this was nothing new. This was, this was something that Caiaphas and, and all of the religious leaders, they already knew this. And yet Stephen was just reiterating. He was, he was making a point of God's faithfulness. And how through all of this, it was bringing us to the point to where we come to understand that the one deliverer that he was bringing through them and for them was the anointed one whom they had killed. Now, just like in the time of Joseph, God provided a deliverer from among his people, Moses. At the time when they needed to be delivered from the oppression of Pharaoh, as we just read, Stephen told of the early days of Moses, how Israel rejected Moses even then. Then how God appeared to Moses after 40 years of having been a fugitive in Egypt, commissioned Moses to be the one used to deliver Israel from Pharaoh, because God had heard the cries of his people as they were afflicted and was sending Moses back to them after 40 years to deliver them from the oppression that they were experiencing under Pharaoh. And so again, just Stephen was, was pointing out God's faithfulness to his people. And yet in verses 35 through 50, what we see in return is the unfaithfulness of God's people toward a faithful God. Verse 35, as Stephen continues, he says, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a, and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Babylon. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so Stephen was referring to Joshua chapter, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. At the very end, that's what he brought him to. But we see through this, really, Stephen pointed out, pointing out the people's unfaithfulness toward a faithful God. Even though God was using Moses, the people rejected him, even telling him, who made you ruler and judge? They contended with him time and time again while they were in the wilderness. Even turning their hearts away from the living God, away from their faithful God, and back toward the world, back toward Egypt. Moses was referred to as the friend of God, with whom God spoke as a friend does face to face, through whom Israel was given the law. God delivered them, provided for them, protected them, and yet the people rejected Moses and rejected God. Even having a golden calf, an idol made, and declaring that this had delivered them from Egypt. They turned away from worshiping God and turned back to worshiping the gods of the world, images made by human hands. And therefore God promised to send them into exile because of the rebellion, their transgressions, which he did. He sent them into exile, just as he said. Not only did they consistently reject God in the wilderness, but even when they entered the promised land, the faithfulness of God was responded to with unfaithfulness by his people, time and time again. Again, Stephen and those listening knew the history of Israel. This was nothing new to them. But what Stephen would soon arrive at was the conclusion that they weren't any different at that very moment in that specific day. In verses 44 through 48, Stephen explained how Moses was directed to build the tent of witness, the tabernacle in the wilderness, after the pattern he was shown by God. And that was what brought, was brought into the promised land by Joseph. And so it was until the time of David. And then came David's son, Solomon, who was the one who built the temple. But then, as I had referred to earlier, Stephen quoted 
Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. And this was, for them, I would imagine just a huge bomb that was dropped. They were shocked. It says in verse 48, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? What was Stephen saying? He, in turn, at this very point, was accusing them of of idolatry, of worshiping the very temple that was made by human hands. The same hands that made the idols that their fathers had bowed down to in worship, having their hearts turned from the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and turned toward these worthless idols that are made by human hands. The very temple that cannot contain the creator of the universe. The Lord said, did not my hand make all these things? I can just imagine Caiaphas and the religious leaders' expression on their faces at this time, at this very moment. We can do the same thing today. If we think about it, we can do the very same thing. We can worship a church building. And we can worship all kinds of other things. We can commit the very sin that they did. The sin of idolatry. By the way, some people live, they communicate to the world that he only lives where the building exists. And not in their lives all the time. God being completely absent from their lives outside of when they're at the church building. So the church is not made up of of the building. Not a, a certain place. The church is made up of people, a people who are surrendered to Jesus Christ, uh, who, who, a, a people, the church is made up of a people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so it isn't a church building, and we can idolize a, a building, and we shouldn't do that. We can idolize so many other things, even our, our spouses, our, our children, uh, we can idolize so many things and put them in the place that the Lord should have in our lives. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 should be a truth we hold dear, that we would come to understand that God is with us wherever we go and our lives should reflect our faith in God wherever we are. So Stephen, through these verses, explained God's faithfulness from Abraham to Solomon, but but he also pointed out uh, God's people and their unfaithfulness toward a faithful God. So number one, God's faithfulness from Abraham to Solomon, and then we have the gospel received and rejected, beginning in verse fifty-one, which says, "You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute?" And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What what a rebuke. If they hadn't understood where Stephen was going with this, he made it abundantly clear at his conclusion. Stephen had explained God's 
faithfulness to them from Abraham to Solomon. He had always gone to them as he does today. God always reaches to us. He first loved us. He gave to us the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He's always come to man as he does today. The temple was clearly a place of worship, but it wasn't a place to worship and was not the only place God dwelt. He is omnipresent. He was present in Mesopotamia just as much as he was present in Egypt and in the wilderness and in the promised land. And wherever you are right now, he is present. Stephen declared that they had received the gospel and they had rejected the gospel. He told them that they were a stubborn, haughty, opinionated, and prideful people that are of the flesh. They resisted the Holy Spirit just like their fathers had done in the past and were guilty of betraying and killing the anointed one of God. They had been the recipients of the law and yet they had rejected it. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says, Working together with them, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today and at this very moment, as you hear of God's grace and salvation through Jesus Christ, Know that it is a moment that God is shedding his favor on you. Don't reject the offer of salvation like others have. May today be the day of salvation for you. And may it be reflected in your life and how you live for the glory of God. So we see here how it is that Stephen had pointed out very clearly that they had rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they were guilty of putting him on the cross. You know, the Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one, is what the Bible tells us. And so we're all guilty of placing Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is from that that we are called to repent, to turn from, to confess our sins to the Lord and ask him not only for forgiveness, but to be our Lord and Savior. Thirdly, we see a compassion beyond their comprehension. Uh, To close, uh, we're going to verse 54. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The question here is, is why, why were they so enraged? I mean, they were so enraged that um, they, were, they were grinding their teeth. I mean, they were filled. They were indignant. They were beside themselves. They were out of their minds is what they were with anger. Well, 
is for this very reason. And, and please listen to this because, because we, again, could be the hearers of the gospel and enraged just like they were. Out of our minds, not in our right minds. Why were they enraged? Because the word of God cut deep into their hearts and exposed what was there. And they were convicted, and yet they rejected the truth. That's why. They proved to be like those that had rejected God and whom Stephen had referred to. These were men before Stephen who appeared religious but denied its power, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.5. They were in the flesh, full of the flesh, and were angry to the point of stoning Stephen. They had rejected truth. They had rejected the gospel. And they were ready to kill, to murder the herald of the good news. In contrast to them, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, having the face of perfect peace, fixing his eyes on heaven, seeing the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was full of courage, which came from godly wisdom and faith, which translated into power and discipline in the midst of chaos and anger and the utter rejection of Jesus Christ. Even as they rushed Stephen and began to stone him at the approval of Saul of Tarsus, he fell to his knees and prayed for God to have mercy toward his accusers and his murderers as he knew they didn't understand what they were doing. They had been shown a compassion by Stephen and the declaration of the gospel that they couldn't comprehend. The question for us is, and for you, When you hear the truth, what is your reaction? When you're faced with the truth, how do you respond? Are you humbled? Are you repentant? Are you thankful, grateful for hearing the truth and respond by surrendering your will to God's will? At least that should be our response. A complete surrender of yielding to Uh, really the authority of God's word and the lordship of God in our lives. And so Stephen explained God's faithfulness from Abraham to Solomon. He explained how it was that the gospel had been given to him. They had heard it once more, yet they received and rejected time and time again. And thirdly, What was presented to them is a compassion beyond their comprehension. And this was Stephen's last stand, and it was truly a mighty one. Stephen's eyes were continually fixed on Jesus Christ, and in so doing, his faith never wavered. He simply explained God's faithfulness, declared the guilt of the people, and then interceded on behalf of the people that didn't understand God's grace. How about you? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died for your sins, was buried, and rose from the grave three days later, and ascended to the Father, and today sits at the right hand of the Father? Do you believe that? You know, all have sinned, as I said earlier, and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. 
But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Christ, we can come to know salvation. For Jesus said that there is salvation in no one else. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Romans chapter 10 verse 9 it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In verse 13 it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call out to the Lord? Would you come to believe today? Would you say that today would be the day of salvation for you? For favor has visited you. Salvation has visited you today. May this be the day of salvation for you. If you do not know salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And may you be encouraged knowing that God is with you wherever you go. For he is faithful. God bless you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for reminding us once again of your faithfulness of how much you love us. I pray that we would not be like the religious leaders that were falsely accusing Stephen of hearing the gospel, remaining in the flesh, being filled with pride and being highly opinionated in the things of the world and perhaps philosophies and and things that really compare to your wisdom are all foolishness. I pray instead that we would allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to set us in, to set us right, to bring us to a place of surrendering our lives to you completely, not partly. A part surrender is no surrender at all. I pray that you would help us to understand your love, your faithfulness, And the desire that all should come to repentance. That there's not one that you wish would would be destroyed. There's not one that you wish would be condemned forever. But that all would come to know salvation in Jesus Christ. I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen your church. Be with us, Father. And remind us of your faithfulness and the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.